Father, we thank you for this time that we have to meet as your people and read your word and listen to it. And we pray that uh, you will work in our hearts to, um, to have an attitude of obedient children to, to not ha let the noise uh, of our lives distract us from the truth of your word. Uh, we thank for all those who are here, for those who have given to your work here. We pray that you may bless them generously, that they may excel in all good things. For Christ's sake and in his name we've asked this. Amen. So this evening we continue. Last week, you remember, we went back to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8. And we've been studying the book of Mark under the title, The King of the Kingdom. Uh, and tonight we're talking about the death of the kingdom. Of course, we talked about the word of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, the identity of the kingdom. And tonight we're talking about the death of the king. When you walk into most churches, when you talk to most Christians, when you uh, attend most Christian things, one thing you will notice is Christians tend to celebrate the cross. There's a wood, which is kind of, you know, the one is like this and the other one like that, perpendicular. And they call it the cross. And they celebrate it. They wear necklaces with a cross on it. And they wear small little things on their shirt with the, the cross on it. Small little pins on the shirt with the cross on it. Uh, they wear rings like I do with the cross on it. Um, and the question is, why do Christians celebrate the cross? Why do they use this symbol and rejoice over this symbol? Because ultimately what the cross represents is the death of Jesus. So then who talks about death? If you are serious in any culture, people try not to talk about death. And when somebody is dead, they try not to talk of him as a dead person. So nobody wants to celebrate the death of anything, and especially of a person. And yet Christians celebrate the death of Jesus and tend to rejoice and find pride in carrying the symbol of his death, which is the cross. And so the question is, why? And the answer is, it's because the cross and the death of Jesus is central to the Christian message. Basically, what I'm saying is you can't understand the news, what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, unless you understand the cross, unless you understand his death. And that's why for Christians, the cross is such an important thing. It's such a beautiful thing that they celebrate. This morning I was talking to somebody actually <coughs> about the same topic and it's, it's interesting that this object of rejection and wrath um, and social uh, shame became the object of pride and celebration for Christians. And why? Because of what it means and what it has done. And that's what we'll be studying tonight. My hope and my prayer is that at the end of this evening, you will stop for a moment and ask yourself, is my life cross-shaped? Has it been influenced by the cross of Jesus? And if you say yes, well, the question is in what manners? How is your life influenced by this cross, by this work of Jesus on the cross, by his death? For some of you, it may just be the beginning of a new walk with Jesus. It may just be for the first time you understand what he did on the cross. And you say from today onward, this is what I'm going to leave. This is how I'm going to live. This is what I'm going to do. It's going to be cross-shipped. 
For some of you, it will be, well, yes, I do know that Jesus did all these wonderful things for me, but they've never really impacted how I live my day-to-day life. And maybe that's where I need to start. (coughs) The passage has two major sections. On the the one part, Mark described to us how Jesus died. And on the other side, he describes to us what that means. And those are two points, two major points. And then the third one, which is application. It's the death of the king, the description of the death of Jesus, and of course the meaning of the death of the king. The death of the king described. Verse 21. <coughs> Read with me. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garment among them, casting lot for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, The king of the Jew. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And and those who passed by deride him, wedging their head and saying, Ha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribe mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Mark is very clear in his description. It's a short description, so it doesn't take long. It's roughly ten verses where he... <coughs> he described what happened over a period of six hours. And what do we see over a period of six hours is that Jesus died, but he died crucified. See, there's many kinds of death. Uh, you may die in a car accident. You may die at your house um, because you were sick, because you were getting old. Uh, you may die in a hospital. Um, you may, there's many ways to die. But he just didn't die the way anybody dies. He just didn't die the way normal people die. He died crucified. He died crucified, mocked by everybody, even the worst people of society. Verse 27, that's where you see them. And with him they crucified two robbers. Now you see that in verse 20... 20, um, uh, 20 4, 25, 26, you see all those coming back to the fact that he was crucified and crucified. What was the crucifixion? Well, the crucifixion was the worst form of punishment that was given in that time to criminals. Like today, we have laws in the country, and if you steal something, you go to the judge and they catch you, they take you to the judge, there is a certain punishment they will give you. You kill somebody, you go to the court, there is a certain punishment they will give you. Now if you were the worst offender, if you were the worst of all the bad people who ever lived, in that time, well, they didn't just put you in prison, they crucified you. They publicly put you on this wood So as everybody else will look at you and decide never to do what you did again. 
It was such a bad punishment that one of the well-known Romans called Ciceron said that a Roman citizen should never be crucified, no matter what he did. They would rather cut his head than put him publicly on display for everybody to laugh at him, for everybody to shame him and die a very slow death. Jesus didn't just die a very, very shameful death. He died being considered to be the worst of all human beings. Even the robbers reviled him. Reviled him. Verse 32, at the end, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Who are these people? Verse 27, they crucified two robbers one on his right and one on his left. So even the robbers were shaming him. Even the robbers were laughing at him. He died the worst death that anyone could ever die. And when he died, was he acclaimed by people? No, he was reviled, even worse. Look, verse 20, 29. And those who passed by deride him. Waging their head and saying, Ah, oh, you who will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribe mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You know, some people, some leaders of movement, they die and everybody celebrate their death. Everybody says you died for the good cause. Just two, three days ago, we were celebrating our mart martyrs, our national heroes. There's two of them that we celebrated this past week. They were dead. They died. But they had people, when they were dying, who were cheering them. Well, when Jesus died, there was no one cheering. There was no one saying you're doing a good thing. Everybody was laughing at him. Everybody was deriding him. Everybody was reviling him. And then he was not just dying a normal death. He was not just being shot. He was put publicly on display to be shamed by everyone. But why did he do that? Well, that's where Mark goes, isn't it? Verse 33. The meaning of the death of the king. Well, on the sixth hour, had <coughs> when the sixth hour had come, it was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on, his, on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark tells us there was three things. There's three events that Mark brings onto the scene. And the reason Mark brings onto the scene these three events is because these three things that happened will help us understand what was happening why did the king, why did Jesus, who was the son of God, who didn't have a problem with anyone, who actually was a good man, was, <laughs> never did anything wrong, why did he die the worst death ever? 
like the worst of criminals, mocked and reviled and derided even by the worst of criminals. And Mark tells us three things. The first he says, there was darkness. Now remember, from uh, earlier on, they brought him to be crucified around about the you know, ninth hour. Uh, well, no, what did it say? It says here, at the sixth hour, there was darkness. Now, earlier on, they talked about, where is that now? I'm trying to find it. Um, right, verse 25, this is what it says. And it was the third hour. Third hour, that's like 9 a.m. in the morning. So they take Jesus and they crucify him right about 9 in the morning. At 12, which is the sixth hour, three hours later, there's darkness over this place. It's full of darkness. And it's all darkness for an hour. It's darkness for three hours until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Well, Mark says, this is not natural. This doesn't happen. There's surely something. Why would there be darkness for three hours? And when this man at the ninth hour cries out and dies, well, the darkness is gone. And Mark says there's something. Now, surely there's some natural explanation to this. But Mark sees behind it something that's happening in heaven. What is happening in heaven that creates such a clear picture of spiritual reality to human eyes? Well, we find the answer in verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out loud, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it's clear, isn't it? Now it's clear. The reason there's darkness, it is a symbol of God's anger and God's judgment over the earth. But why is that? Well, because this Jesus is carrying the sins of every single human being who ever lived. At that point in history, the past sin, the future sins, everything was funneled into this one man. And that one man was carrying the sin of every single human being that has ever lived. And therefore, God was so angry that, that there could be very visible sign of the anger and judgment of God over the earth. But it didn't stop there. Mark says, verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was darkness because all the sins were poured onto Jesus. At that time in history, Jesus was carrying the sins of the world. And in result of that, God, his father, was moved away from him. And so he says, why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Well, because he's carrying your sin, he's carrying my sin, he's carrying the sins of everybody. Does it stop there? No. When he cries out, he's lost. The curtain of the temple is torn. Now, what was that curtain for? Now, you may not remember, you may not know this, you may know this, but in the Old Testament, there was a temple. God asked Solomon to build a temple for him. And the temple was a place of meeting. God would come and the people would come from all Israel and converge to this place and bring their offering and their prayer to God. And he says, when you pray to me in this temple, 
I will answer you. Why? Because I will dwell in this temple. So in the temple, there were many courts. But at the, in the center of the, of, the te- of the temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holy. In that place, there was the Ark of the Covenant and many other things. And around that table, there was a thick curtain. Probably my hands, this hand's kind of large. It was thick curtain. Probably a meter thick. It wasn't just simple curtain like you have in the house. It was really, really thick. And the reason that curtain was there, it was a clear reminder that no human, sinful human being could enter into the presence of God, of a holy God, whichever way he likes. So who went into the, the holy of holy? It was one man. It was a high priest. He went in there once a year. And when he went in there, before he went in there, he had to go through a whole process of purification to make sure that he had atoned for a lot of his sins. But that was not enough. He would wear a small little bell on his feet. And every time he walked, that thing would make noise. And they would tie a rope on one of his feet. And so when he's in there, in case he did something wrong, and the wrath of God and the holiness of God fell on him, and he died, people would hear the bell not ringing anymore. But nobody would rush in there, so they would pull him. So nobody went into that place the way they liked. And yet, Mark says to us, when Jesus carries the sins of the world, and he takes them to his father, the consequence is the curtain is torn. What is the meaning of this? Well, now there's access. Now the holy of holy can be entered by anybody. Because he has removed the curse. He has removed the sins. Now people can approach God. Now almost anybody (laughs) can approach God. (coughs) So now you understand why did the son of God, why did Jesus die the worst shame shameful death ever possible well he died the worst ever shameful death possible so as he can take the sins of the world upon him and in return he can open the way for human being to see god there was a transaction on that cross paul reminds us 2 corinthians 5 21 he says he made him who had no sin to be sin for us so as we who were sinful can become the righteousness of god that what happened on that cross on that cross jesus carried my sin your sins he carried them on himself and that's why he said father father why have you forsaken me because he was carrying your sins and my sins and if the curtain opened it was a consequence of what he had done his sacrifice was fully accepted before he even rose from the dead god had already agreed to free people to let people come to him in hebrews he even say wait well, since now we have access to the most holy of holy now we have clear access to god because we're good no because he died and was rejected so now notice when Jesus is dying, there's two groups of people. There's the bystanders. And the bystanders, what are they saying? You find that in verse 29. You said you would destroy the temple in three days. Well, why don't you come down from the cross? You said you, sa- you saved so many people. I mean, they saw how you were saving many people. 
Why don't you save yourself? You say you are the king. Why don't you come down from there? <coughs> and then there is the centurion. Did you notice? Verse 39. The centurion is an experienced killer. He's killed many people. He's a soldier, professional soldier. And yet he looked at this man who's dying. And he says, I've never seen anything like this. I've killed many people before. I've watched many people die. But I've never seen anyone die with something around him. Surely this man is not normal. Surely this man is the son of God. You see, confronted with the death of Jesus, Mark says there's only two ways you can respond. You can look at it and you realize how bad you are and how great God is. And say, I accept that this is the son of God who died for me. You can respond in faith like the centurion did. Or you can pass by and still not see what he did on the cross. You can walk past Golgotha and you can see the most important event in all history. The most important event in all eternity. And you can pass by and mocking what just happened. There is, there is actually a, an irony here, right? Did, I don't know if you noticed the irony. Do you think Jesus couldn't get out of the cross? Of course. This man, you, we read together, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He stopped the water <laughs> to move. He brought food, bread out of nowhere. Takes two, five loaves and turn it into thousands and thousands of loaves. I mean, how hard was this for this man to just say to the nail, get out of my hand, and I walk down? How hard was it? It wasn't. But the reason he stuck on that cross, it's because it was meant for those very same people who are laughing at him. You see, if he did not stay on the cross, those people and me would never have been saved. So he had to stay on that cross. And yet the same people are mocking him. So my dear friend, there's two ways me and you can respond to what Jesus has done here. We can mock him and say nothing. Or we can bow down and respond in faith. Like the centurion did. What would that look like if we bowed down and responded in faith? Like the centurion did. Well, it is, I would say, a life that will be characterized by four things. The first is <coughs> humility. A cross-shaped life. Somebody who understands the meaning of the death of Jesus. Somebody who's taken what Jesus has done as good news. As news that saves him from death and brings him to life. From judgment into liberty. He becomes, she becomes humble. Humble not only toward man, but toward God. She recognizes how bad and how sinful she or he is. She recognizes that m the nature of man is sinful. That I'm, I'm, I'm worse than I thought I am. I'm actually very, very bad. And capable of very, very bad things. They don't have a too big picture of themselves. They understand how bad they are. And my, my friend, if God had to die for you, 
how good do you think you are? No good at all. You had to be really, really bad for God to die. <laughs> and to endure the worst death ever. You see, Jesus took my place and your place. We were meant to be reviled by everybody, even the worst people in society, because that's who we are. We're bad people. And so when we understand the cross, it pushes us to be humble people. But at the same time, the gospel, when we understand the gospel and we understand the cross, it doesn't just make us to be very humble people. It makes us to be very secured people. We are not looking for identity in what people think of us. We are not looking in identity in whether we are approved by society or not. We are secured in the love of God. Why? Because we say, if he could die for me, he surely loves me. Paul in Romans says, if God could give us his son, what else can he not give us? Who would you die for? Just in your mind, look at people you like, people you love, and, and, and decide who, who would you die for? Who would you agree to die for? I've seen parents who don't even want to die for their children. I always tell the story uh, you know, we're very thankful for, for, for artists. And in Africa, we have artists in Nigeria, and they have these Nollywood movies. I don't know if you've seen them. And, and one of those Nollywood movies, I saw a clip on WhatsApp. Uh, there is a thief who goes into the house. He's a robber with a gun. And he walks into the house. He, he finds the husband and the wife. They've been watching TV and talking, you know, nice, like, yeah, sweetie, 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 sherry, 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 sherry. And then he walks in and he, you know, he bumps in and says, okay, good. Now someone is going to die tonight. You choose which one it is. And the husband looks and goes, and he says, well, here's a gun. I'm giving you a favor. You shoot her. And the, the man is shaking. <laughs> he can't shoot. No, 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 no. Well, it's going to be me. I'm ready to die. And then, and then this guy takes the gun and gives to the wife. And she, she just pulls the trigger. But it's not loaded right. And then, of course, he leaves and let them you know, figure out what just happened there. Uh, but what I'm saying is, he, he was like, oh, I can die for her, but she can't die for him, right? Who would you die for? You see, sometimes you're like, I can't die for anyone. Even people I like. Even people I love. Well, would you die for your enemy? Would you die for the person who comes today and shoots you in the foot? Paul says, while we were yet sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus was ready to die for us, even when we were his enemies. And so when we understand that it is for us that he did this, we can stand secure in his love. We know, like Paul says in Romans 8, that's why in Romans 8 you have Paul, the very last part of Romans 8. People don't understand that when Paul said what he said, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I think we sang that here. It's because he understood what happened on the cross. And it gave him security. He said, when I don't have food, I still know that God loves me. When I don't have friends, I still know that God loves me. When I'm about to die, I still know that God loves me. And I'm secured in his love. I'm not insecure. 
You know, there's lots of Christians who go around and they're like, does God love me? Does God not love me? Does God love me? I'm not sure if God loves me today. I'm well, my friend, if you have put your trust in Jesus, you can rest secured because you know he loves you. It humbles us, but it gives us such security that sometimes people think we're proud. <coughs> the third thing it does is it helps us live a life of sanctification. Because we know that the problem of sin has been dealt with forever. You see, our, we have a new identity. John 1, 12 says, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. What's your new nature? Who are you? Well, I'm a child of God. There's a great song we sing here sometimes, before the throne of God. And somewhere it says, when Satan tempts me and shows me the guilt within, up there I look. And I see him who died for me. You see, it will happen for you to fall. It will happen for you to dwell in sin now and then. And, and at that time, the devil will say, hey, look now. You say you're Christian. But my dear friend, you look at the cross and you say, no, no, I'm not. I may have sinned, but I'm not a sinner anymore. That's not who I am. Why? Because Jesus dealt with it completely on the cross. You see, on that cross, Jesus Finish the problem of sin forever. What is left is whether it will be a reality in your life or not. But for God, that's finished. It's like being in prison, right? You're in prison and you have all the shackles and um, have tied your hands and your feet and somebody comes and cuts all the chains and makes you free. You have a choice. You can stay in your cell and still pretend and say, I'm still a prisoner. Or you can walk out and say, I'm not a prisoner anymore. Well, Jesus has broken the chains of sins. Jesus has freed us from sin. The question is, are we now going to live as the children of God or not? You see, sanctification is not, oh, well, I need to do this to please God. Sanctification is, I am doing all these things that the Bible says I must do because that's who I am. It's also as I can earn favors with God, it's because that's who I am. And I know it's difficult because it's a change of identity. It's something we're not used to, but it's something we have to learn to be, and we better do. And the cross is a reminder again. Every time I fail, every time I sin, I look at the cross and I say, that's not who I am. I'm now a child of God. I may have sinned, but I'm not a sinner anymore. That's not my nature. I'm a child of God. And Jesus has dealt. He's dealt with the power of sin over my life. Lastly, and that's where I'm going to end. It is a life of sacrifice. A cross-shaped life is a life of humility, it's a life of security in the love of God, it's a life of sanctification because of our new identity and it is a life of sacrifice Jesus died on that cross, why did he die on the cross? for him, no for you and me and he calls us to live our life for others he took the ultimate sacrifice, he died you and me. And he asked you and me today not to live for ourselves but to live for him and for those around us.
It is shocking sometimes to see people who call themselves Christians, people who call themselves redeemed by Jesus, disciple of Jesus, and yet there's nothing in their life that testify to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's shocking. And I know we live in an environment where we are lied to. People say, oh, yeah, you come to Jesus and you're going to get cars, you're going to get houses, you're going to get uh, everything will be stable. That's what we call the gospel. My dear friend, that's not the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus says. You come to him, he makes you right with God. But from there onward, you live as a child of God. Not for yourself, but for God and others. A life of sacrifice. You're working hard. You're earning a lot of money, but it's not for you to eat and use as you please. It's for the kingdom of those in need. Your time, it's not your time. It's God's time that you use for those in need and for the kingdom. Everything is not centered on you. No, it's for others. You come to church. You don't come to church so as you can sing next song and you can walk out of here, you're rejoicing. You come to church so you can also be a blessing for others. You see, it becomes a life of sacrifice. Because it's the great sacrifice of Jesus that has made us well. Now we can live for the greater glory of him and the good of others. It's by heads. Jesus died the worst death so as you can be reconciled with God. And Mark says that's good news that changed lives. Has it changed your life? You see, you can choose today to reject it you can choose to embrace it in faith. What will be your choice? Father, we come to you this evening and we do acknowledge that many times we don't choose to respond in faith. Many times we are like the passerby. We mock you, we deride you, we revile you. Forgive us. Thank you because your spirit will help us today. Not only take what you've said and apply it in our life, but also take it and share it with others. For Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.